0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: For giving. For giving. Thank you for your giving. For lot of your country. For money. Thank you for giving. to the lot of Christmas offering. But most important.
2: So thank you.
3: First Baptist Church. and am be the first to welcome you and to greet you. And, and you've had a taste. You've had a flavor of the men's ensemble and of the choir. If you haven't been to Jingle in the City, tonight is your last chance. I'm just going to tell you, you're missing out. It's an incredible story, incredible music. You don't want to miss out. They put in a lot of work and it's a, it's a, it's a very moving, powerful telling of the love of Christ. And so come out and support them tonight and be here Uh, for for an incredible jingle in this city we look forward to the last presentation this is your last chance to be able to see it tonight if uh uh, if you're a guest with us i'd like to just invite you to this little guest registration card that's in the pew rack there right in front of you and if you could fill it out for us, it'd be a great way for us to get to know you by name. And and on here, you can indicate ways that we can pray for you. You can indicate to receive our newsletter. That tells you all about what's going on in the life of the church, all the missions, opportunities we have, all the all the opportunities you have to, to serve and to be connected into our church. And so we want you to be informed that you can receive or indicate on here to receive that through either email or, or by mail either one. And, and that way, you'll you'll know what's going on in the life of the church. At this time, I'd like to dismiss our young kids to we worship so if you are age four through the third grade you will be dismissed over here on my right we'll give them just a few seconds to exit and then I'm going to just ask that uh, we stand and I'm going to pray for us and we're going to continue to worship let's go ahead and let's go ahead and stand up father we're gathered here as we celebrate the birth of your son in this Christmas season a highlight of the year we just we just say, thank you for sending your son. We could never imagine a plan of, of salvation that would, would come in the, the storyline of, of Jesus' birth. Or did, we could never imagine it any other way. We just thank you for sending him that we can have life in him. We pray, Lord, as we, as we hear your word preached this morning that you re- remove any distractions, remove any uh, difficulties that we're facing in life so we can focus on your love and we can focus on your word. We pray you teach us and just allow us to, to sense your comfort and your peace during this Christmas season. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
2: Good to worship with you today. I want to echo what's already been said about encouraging you to come tonight at six o'clock. If you've not already been a part of Jingle in the City, it's just an incredible uh, production and a moving uh, worship event for the birth of Christ. Eighty-one uh, people are in the cast and singers. At some points, they're all up here on stage at the same time. And I just want to offer uh, thanks. To those people who have invested uh, countless hours in uh, preparation and performance. Uh, I know many of them feel like they've been here all week, have slept here and lived here, and families that have gotten children here at all hours. Thank you for giving and sacrificing your time that we could worship. It's been well worth it, and we look forward to one more of those tonight. So I want to add my thanks there. Well, I'm sharing a uh, Christmas series of sermons uh, from the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Part of the Christmas story that we often overlook, the title of this series is, Who is Jesus? Because in the family tree of Jesus, we understand something of his identity. And that's the most important question we can ask ourselves. Who is Jesus to you? And so, In the family tree, Matthew, and next week we'll look at Luke, I think have crafted this to begin, even from the beginning, to help us understand who Jesus is. So today we're going to look at the stories of four women in the genealogy of Jesus. And so I want to, by way of introduction, just tell you a story from my genealogy, from my family tree, about an incredible woman, uh, connected to my family story. Her name was Lydia Cox, and Lydia Cox was born in 1829 in Blue Ridge, Georgia. That's where I'm from, in the mountains of North Georgia. And she married a man named John German, who was a Civil War veteran. He fought for the Confederacy. When he came home to his little farm there near Blue Ridge, he found that uh, that uh, guerrilla soldiers had looted and plundered most of what he, he had. And so he determined to move his family, as soon as he was able, uh, out west. And he had heard of Colorado, and he dreamed of going with his family to Colorado. So in 1870, he loaded up a covered wagon pulled by a team of two oxen, and John and Lydia and their seven children, uh, one boy, six girls, and a Newfoundland dog named Chain, set out from Blue Ridge, Georgia in a covered wagon pulled by these oxen headed toward Colorado. And so they made their way from Blue Ridge to Copper Hill, Tennessee, and Cleveland, and Chattanooga, came across the Cumberland Plateau to Sparta, not too far from us, spent three months in Sparta while the feet of their oxen healed from the, the crossing of the Cumberland, went on to Nashville, Clarksville, Hopkinsville, crossed the Mississippi into Missouri. When they got to Missouri, they thought about settling there, and they sold the wagon and sold the oxen and uh, put a down payment on a farm of 120 acres and stayed three years uh, there in Missouri. But it still was not what they were looking for and the lure of Colorado and the frontier back in them. So three years later, in 1873... They uh, sold what they had and bought another team of oxen, a covered wagon, and all nine of them, this time with also a milk cow in tow and a chicken coop tied to the back of the wagon. And John and Lydia and their seven children set out for Colorado. They made it all the way across Kansas, almost to Fort Wallace on the border of Kansas and Colorado. And on the morning of September 11th, 1870. Three, They were um, breaking camp Stephen, the boy who was by this time 19 years old saw a herd of antelope out ahead uh, went ahead to shoot an antelope for meat and a band of 19 Cheyenne Indians led by Medicine Water and Calf Woman attacked them they shot Stephen and killed him um, they tried to defend the family John and Lydia were killed and scalped Two of the girls were killed and scalped. Four girls, uh, Catherine, age 17, was left alive. Sophia, age 12. Julia, age 7. Addie, age 5. The Indians burned their wagon, burned all of their possessions, carried the four girls captive. They split into two bands, the two older with one band, uh, when they rejoined the larger tribe of southern Cheyenne and, and headed south. Uh, soldiers from Fort Wallace came and found the scene, the smoldering remains, the charred bodies. Uh, But amazingly, the family Bible survived unscathed. And the soldiers opened the Bible and read about the family that was there. You know, in the old family Bibles, that was your record of your genealogy. That was where you put your, your family's births and deaths and so forth. And they counted five charred bodies, but they counted nine names listed in the front of the body in the Bible. And they correctly surmised that the Cheyenne had taken four of the girls captive. They set out in pursuit of them uh, for, for days, for weeks, pursued them as they traveled south. Finally, a company led by Lieutenant Frank Baldwin caught up with one of the two bands of the Cheyenne near Pampas, Texas. There's a historical marker not far from I-40 near Amarillo there today. And in a surprise attack, the Indians fled from their camp. And uh, when they fled, one of the Army scouts saw a pile of buffalo hides and there was movement under it. Those two younger girls, Julia and uh, Addie, age seven and five, were alive and they rescued them. Uh, Frank Baldwin won the Medal of Honor, or was awarded the Medal of Honor for his raid on the Cheyenne and the rescue of those two girls. The other two, the older two, were with another part of the tribe moving south and the army pursued them for months, tried to negotiate surrender. Catherine, age 17, suffered terribly. All of them were subjected to slave labor. But as you can imagine, a 17-year-old in that situation was subjected to much worse. Finally, in, uh, the two younger rescued in November of 1873. Finally, in March of 1874, the, Sh- the Southern Cheyennes tribe surrendered to the U.S. Army and they negotiated and re- were released, uh, Catherine and Sophia. They were reunited at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and General Miles was appointed their guardian. Catherine reunited her four sisters together and cared for them. She was able to identify most of the 19 Cheyenne that had massacred her family. They were arrested, sent to Fort Marion, Florida, to, uh, to prison. Uh, my great-great-great-great-grandfather, Lydia, was my great-great-great-aunt. My great 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 grandfather Lydia's father, Uh, sent word that he would pay for the safe return of the girls to Georgia. But I really don't think they wanted to cross Kansas again. And they felt safe at Fort Leavenworth. They stayed there under the guardianship of General Miles, eventually grew up and married and lived their lives and raised families uh, in in Kansas. 116 years later, in 1990, on the site of the massacre, a peace ceremony was held. A reconciliation by a descendant of Medicine Water and a descendant of John and Lydia German uh, expressed uh, forgiveness for the massacre and accepted uh, that forgiveness. Well, to me that's a pretty amazing story as a part of my family history, but today we're going to look at four women's stories in the genealogy of Jesus that are more amazing than that. Now, let's just review for a moment. We saw last week, let me read to you Matthew 1.1, that Matthew begins the gospel. God begins the New Testament with the genealogy of Jesus. And his purpose is this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what God is telling us in the genealogy is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed king, the rightful ruler of Israel, and he is also not only the son of David, the king, but he's the son of Abraham through whom God said, I'll bless all people. So Jesus is the king of the Jews and the hope of the world. He is how God intends to bless the world through the lineage of Abraham. Now, in the genealogy that follows verse 1, there are 40 names of men, of fathers in that lineage. There are the names of four women. Why 40 men and only four women? There had to be 40 women, right? As I understand things, you've got to have a mother and a father here. So there's only four of the mothers listed. Why? You can say, well, maybe they were the most famous. No, there's some... Women in this genealogy, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, gave birth at 90. Uh, There are others that are more famous, Rebecca. Why these four? Maybe they're the most virtuous. No, that's not the case. Why in this genealogy are four women singled out? Well, today I'd like to tell you the story of these four, and then you see what common threads you hear in these four stories. As we go through the genealogy of Jesus, the first woman's name, the first wife that we encounter is Tamar in verse 3, Matthew 1:3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron. So who is Tamar? Well, let me tell you at the outset that this is an R-rated story, and I'm going to try to make a PG-13 story out of it, okay? Okay. uh, Judah was one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Became the twelve tribes of Israel. But Judah chose not to live with his brothers. He moved among the Canaanites and so he had a son named Er. And Er married a Canaanite woman, that is Tamar. So Tamar is Judah's um, daughter in law. Uh, Er died uh, and left Tamar a widow without a husband. And there was a Practice in the Old Testament that's described called lever marriage, that if there was a widow and you were a brother, uh, then you were obligated to take that woman as a wife so she would not be left without children or without provision. So Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, my next son is too young to marry. Wait till he grows up. You be a, stay a widow till he grows up, and I'll give you to him in marriage, and you'll have a husband. And so she waited, but when Judah's son was grown, He did not keep his promise, and Tamar had no husband. And so Tamar heard that her father-in-law Judah was making a trip to Timnah, and so Tamar disguised herself and played the role of a prostitute. And let me say to you, in case you're trying to figure out who the good guys and bad guys are in this story, there are no good guys in this story, okay? You know, sometimes you want to know, who's the good guy? There are none in this story. So Tamar disguises herself, goes to the city gate of Timnah, uh, in the role of a prostitute Judah comes to her solicits her and and on the payment that they agree on is a goat for her services and Tamar says how do I know I'm going to receive the goat when you leave and he said I give you my staff and my signet uh, ring as my seal as a pledge well uh, Judah returns home, sends the goat by messenger, and they say, there's no prostitute at Timnah. We don't know who to give the goat to. And much later then it becomes evident that Tamar is pregnant. And Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, and he determines to have her burned at the stake for her, or burned for her prostitution. And Tamar sends word by messenger. Here's the seal and the staff of the man that I was with and Judah realizes his sin and Tamar is spared the death penalty and so Tamar then from that alliance gives birth to twins listed here Perez and Zerah and one of them Perez becomes the lineage of our Savior Jesus the second woman's story in Matthew 1 is down a couple of verses in verse 5 It is Rahab. Verse 5 reads, Salmon, I always want to pronounce it like the fish, but the man's name is not like the fish. So it's Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. What's Rahab's story? Well, after the time of Judah... When God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah to live in the land of Canaan, but they did not yet possess it. They were not numerous enough to take it. And so in God's plan, there was a 400-year detour into Egypt. You remember they went into Egypt to escape famine. They were in slavery. 400 years later, God sends Moses to deliver them out of slavery. And then Joshua leads them back into the land of Canaan. And so as they get to the land, Joshua sends two spies to the first city, Jericho. And these two spies infiltrate the city, and they lodge in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And the king of Jericho hears that these foreigners are there, and he sends messengers to Rahab, and Rahab hides the two spies on the roof of her house under stalks of flax that are drying there. The messengers come and she said, Oh, these strangers were here, but they're gone. I don't know where they're gone. And after they're gone, she tells the men, I have heard of your God. I know that He is the Lord, and I fear Him. Please have mercy upon me when He takes this city. Her house was built into the city wall, and so she let the men, the two spies, out her window on a rope out to escape the city. And they promise her before they leave that they will spare her and her family when the city is taken if she fastens a scarlet cord in that window as a sign. Sure enough, when Joshua's armies come and the walls of Jericho fall and they rush in, that cord is in that window and they spare Rahab and her parents and her brothers and they come to live among the people of Israel. And A- Rahab marries an Israelite and continues the line of Jesus. The third woman whose story is told in this, gener- in this genealogy is Ruth. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, the same verse we looked at about Rahab shares the name of another woman, Rahab, and then Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Well, what's the story of Ruth? Well, in Bethlehem, there was an Israelite man named Elimelech. And he and his wife, Naomi, had two sons. There came a time of famine in Israel. And Elimelech and Naomi took their family to Moab in search of food and wound up staying, sojourning there. Elimelech died there and left Naomi a widow. And her two sons married Moabite women there. And after a period of about ten years, both of the two sons had died. And so now all that remains in this family unit is Naomi the mother-in-law and these two Moabite daughters-in-law and and Naomi determines to go back to her kinfolk, to her homeland in Israel in Bethlehem, and she tells her daughters-in-law, I've released you. Go go back to your people and find a husband there. I have nothing to offer you. And one of them does that, but Ruth, the other, says to Naomi, no, I'm staying with you. And so mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, these two widows, make their journey back to Bethlehem, to the land of Israel. They're poor. Uh, Ruth has to glean in the field, pick up the leftover grain to try to keep them alive, to have enough to live. And in that process of gleaning, she meets a kind man, Boaz, who protects and provides for her. And Naomi, when she hears of that, says, he's a distant relative of ours. Remember this law of leveret marriage extends not only with a brother, but any other relative who has the ability to marry a widow and offer her a home and a lineage. And so Naomi says, here's what you do. Put some perfume on. They're out threshing at the threshing floor. They're camping out during the harvest season, so they'll be sleeping there outside. And when he's asleep, when boys is asleep, after he's asleep, you creep up. You lie down at his feet. When he wakes up, say, have you ever thought about getting married? Not exactly like that, but <laughs> some that, that's my editorial edition there, but something like that. And Boaz, through a process, comes to agreement that he will fulfill the role of kinsman-redeemer for Ruth, and he marries her. And Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed, who's the father of Jesse. The fourth woman, other than Mary, who is listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, is not named She is only called Uriah's wife. Her name is Bathsheba. It mentions her in verse 6. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. The story of Bathsheba is this. David had a soldier, an officer in his army, named Uriah, who was a Hittite. And the army was away at waging war, but David remained in Jerusalem during this campaign, and one night he couldn't sleep, and he was walking on the roof of his house, and he saw a woman bathing. And she was a beautiful woman, and he inquired who she was, and learned that she was the wife of Uriah, but he sent for her, and she came to him. Uriah's wife became pregnant by David, And David knew he must try to cover up his sin. So he sent for Uriah to come home and give him a report about the war. And Uriah reported how the battle was going. And he said, before you go back, go home and take some leave and visit your wife. But Uriah, in his dedication, while his men were fighting, would not go home and slept on the doorsteps of David's palace. And that plan didn't work. And so David took another step to cover up his iniquity. And he told his general... Put Uriah in the front of battle. And then when the battle rages, pull back and expose his position and leave him there. And Uriah was killed in battle. And after Bathsheba's time of mourning, David called for Bathsheba and took her as his wife. And Bathsheba bore a son to them. But the Lord was not pleased with David's action. And God sent Nathan, the prophet, to expose David and his sin. And David, to his credit, when confronted with his sin, acknowledged it, repented and confessed and cried out to God, but God did not spare the child and the child died. But later, David and Bathsheba bore another son. And that son's name was Solomon who became king and continued the line of David and the lineage of Jesus. What is Matthew trying to tell us by mentioning these four women? These are not the stories you usually tell at Thanksgiving. These are the stories you cover up in your family usually. Why is David putting them here? Of all the the Sarahs and Rebeccas and all the others that could have been here, why these four I think that Matthew, from the very beginning, the get-go, in the genealogy, is communicating something to us about the identity of Jesus by including these four specific women. Let me share with you three things that I think Matthew is telling us about who Jesus is. First of all, Matthew is telling us that Jesus came to identify with sinners. These are sinners. Three out of the four mentioned were engaged in terrible sexual sin, two in prostitution, one in adultery, and the fourth, although I'm not accusing Ruth of sin, men, it's probably not the way you want your daughters to find a husband, right? I, I mean, it's a little bit shady, right? Uh, it, 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 maybe she would not sin, but this is not the ideal way you go about finding a husband. So, you know, there's, there's something here in the lives of all of them. And what is God saying? God is saying this king, although he will be without sin he will become flesh and blood and he will mingle with sinners and he will love sinners and he will identify with sinners. And he's not ashamed to have them in his genealogy. And Jesus God is saying about Jesus from the beginning, He loves you in spite of your sin. There's hope for you even if you are a Rahab or a Tamar or a Bathsheba. There is hope for you. Isn't that wonderful to know about our God? I don't know who you are or what you've done or what guilt you may be carrying, but I want to share with you what kind of Savior we have. He loves sinners. When I was a young pastor... I pastored a a small church, maybe a 100 there on a Sunday, and it was out in the country. I'm sharing this with you to say this is an unlikely setting for what I'm about to share. And uh, I was preaching through the book of Joshua, and I came to the story of Rahab. So one Sunday I preached on the story that I just told you about Rahab. A young guy came up to me at the end of the service and said, Pastor, why did you preach on that this Sunday? I said, well, I'm preaching through the book of Joshua. That's what came next. I'm preaching on it. He said, my sister was here with me visiting this Sunday. I said, yeah, I saw her, but I didn't know she was. He said, she's a prostitute. She's never been in a church before in her life. And here she was today. You see, I believe in divine appointments. I'd never preached on a prostitute story before. This prostitute had never been in church before. And I don't know what happened in her, her life that day. But I know this, God arranged that that prostitute could hear that you can be changed whoever you are and that God loves you whoever you are and that God welcomes sinners. And I think that's what Matthew is telling us here. So I don't know who you are today. I don't know what your backstory is. But I want you to know if you're carrying guilt, if you think you're beyond hope, that there is a God who sent his sinless son through the lineage of sinners so that he might identify with sinners and love sinners and save sinners. Second thing that I think God is telling us about Jesus in this genealogy is that Jesus came to identify with foreigners. You see, Matthew will emphasize that that he's the king of Israel. But in this genealogy, Two Canaanites, a Moabite, and a woman who was either a Hittite or married to a Hittite, they're all immigrants. They're all aliens. They're all foreigners. And I think specifically God reveals that to say Jesus will come not just for Jews but for Gentiles and that Jesus will come for those who are displaced and homeless and He's going to identify with foreigners. And Jesus in this gospel of Matthew will speak to a Roman centurion and the Roman centurion will say, uh, uh, I, my son is sick, you don't even have to come to my home. I know about giving orders. And Jesus will say, I've not found faith so great in all of Israel. And a Canaanite woman will come to Jesus and Jesus will say, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And she will say, even dogs get crumbs from the table. And he will say, your faith has made you whole. And he will be one who welcomes foreigners. I don't know what your politics are, and I don't care, but whatever your politics are about immigration, let me say this to you clearly. We have a Savior who loves immigrants, who identifies with immigrants, who loves foreigners, who loves aliens, and we, the people of God, when they get here, must do so as well, because that's what Jesus is like. There's a third thing that I think God is telling us here. Jesus came to identify with the powerless. The powerless. With the disenfranchised. With the marginalized. All of these women lack standing. Three out of four are widows. May not be a big deal, as big a deal today. But in that culture, you had no power. You had no standing. You had no economic future. And Jesus has among his genealogy, all of these are seeking standing. Tamar is seeking some kind of standing. She does it the wrong way, but she is marginalized by her father-in-law, and she's seeking some standing. And Ruth and Rahab, they're they're the the outcast, the powerless, the marginalized, and Matthew specifically, deliberately, tells us about them to say, Jesus who is coming will identify with that kind of people. He will be the one who will point out the widow giving in the temple above all the other gifts in the temple. He is the one who comes for those who feel powerless and marginalized. And Paul will write later, Why? Why this kind of portrait? Paul will say he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose things that are nothing to do something that no one can boast except those who boast in Jesus Christ. That's his strategy. And all of this is preparing us for Mary, who was certainly powerless and disenfranchised, who didn't commit sexual sin, but who was accused of that and was lumped in among those who did. And who had to become an immigrant and flee with her newborn baby to Egypt, a foreign country, because she was being pursued. And Jesus is preparing us for the one who will be the mother of Jesus, who must live as a foreigner in Egypt, who must be whispered about as one of sin, and one Who will be marginalized and disenfranchised? And Jesus is telling us if you fit in those groups, I'm here for you. I'm not ashamed to identify with you. And so today, whoever you are, whatever your story is, God may have brought you here for a purpose that you need to hear one of those things about Jesus. Who's Jesus? Oh, he's the king. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham, the one through whom God said he'd bless the world. He is also the one who is not ashamed to be numbered among sinners and foreigners and the powerless for those are the people he came to offer hope. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, I don't know the stories of everybody here, but you do and you love every person and and you've brought people here for purposes in their lives today. And Lord, I pray your Spirit will bring home the words of who Jesus is. And I pray in this time that there are those who are in their guilt, may cry out for forgiveness and in repentance find that forgiveness. I pray those who are powerless, who may find a sense of belonging, of widows, and and orphans. I pray for foreigners, for those who feel, Lord, outcast, that they will find in you standing and belonging and forgiveness and wholeness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the gifts that you bring to us. May we receive them by faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand together with me? We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you want to be a follower of Jesus. If you want to receive His gifts of forgiveness and standing and hope and belonging, I want to ask you to indicate that by walking forward in our church. It's the way that you declare, I want to become a Christian, the way you present yourself for baptism. Christmas Day, we're going to have baptism. Two people already going to be baptized on Christmas. you could be baptized on Christmas Day. That'll make you Christmas right there. Today, would you confess your faith in Christ? Maybe you need a church home? We'd welcome you into this family. Indicate that as we sing together. Oh mm-hmm. would you be seated for a moment more as we give our offerings in response to a God who has given us his son we give back to him to say thank you Lord thank you
4: Coming of your Son, Father. I just thought this morning, I thought about when David wrote in the Psalms, what is man that you would consider him. And Father, not only have you considered us, you have committed your one and only Son to us, Father, that we may come to know you and have eternal life. And Father, my heart is filled with thanksgiving for that. And Father, I pray this morning that we would all just be overwhelmed with thanksgiving for all the good things you have done for us. Father, we come now to commit our lives to you, commit our tithes and our offerings. Pray, Father, that you would bless them and use them to the glory of your name and the glory of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name.
5: Yes. This is our house and our store. This is the attic and I'm Mrs. Honeycutt. My husband, Jonas, and I heard you and your friends talking through a bit.
6: You knew, you knew we were here?
5: Yes. That's why we left you out cookies. Because we heard you say that you were hungry. Did you
6: have fun playing in our store? Oh, yes. It must be so much fun for you to own all these pretty things, dresses and dolls and toys. I wish I had all those things. Do you think that would make you happy? Oh yes, I could live in your store forever. There would always be yummy things to eat, and porn clothes to wear, and toys for miles. It would be everything I ever wanted, except for one thing. What's that? Someone to belong to. My sister Georgie loves me and takes good care of me. I just wish for someone, you know, bigger. Someone who could really love me and take care of me and would never leave me.
5: Having pretty things and being in a family are both wonderful gifts. But let me tell you a secret, Lily. Lots of people have many wonderful gifts and even have a big family, but they still feel sad and lonely. How can that be? Because, honey, things and people can't make us happy. No matter how much we have, there's still an empty space inside us that only God can fill up. Have you ever heard the story of baby Jesus? Jesus is God's gift to us. God loves us so much that he knows when we're hurt and lonely and afraid. God knows that life can be really hard and that we're often lonely and sad. Oh, you're so special to him, Lily. God doesn't want us to ever have to face that alone. Even his name means God with us.